It's sort of been a week of mining setbacks because there was this Texas bill that passed, even with engagement from Bitcoin lobbyists, that limited the participation of Bitcoin miners in demand response programs in Texas. But there was also an article today in Coindesk about a Swedish uh, change to the tax treatment of data centers that effectively raises their tax rate on energy consumed by 6,000%, which is a pretty big hike. Yeah. That's 60 times. That's sort of an eat into all of your profits kind of hike. And I think the unifying theme in these two changes is it's not necessarily all about Bitcoin. Sure, limiting Bitcoin demand res- in demand response programs, like, yeah, that's that's obviously directed at Bitcoin. At the same time, it's not like all the senators who voted for that in Texas had a strong opinion. It was just sort of politically expedient. There was a lot of horse trading, and that was kind of a bill that had to pass so other things could happen. In Sweden, it's seems like it's not clear that this new tax surcharge is directed at Bitcoin or just at data centers in general. I look just sort of ahead and I think of a world where Bitcoin has become a public uh, investment. Everybody's everybody's got a little sat, you know, in their uh, investment portfolio. And the price is uh, performing really well. And some political power is now yielded by how much Bitcoin you might own or by how much Bitcoin mining capacity is in your country. And so to watch these jurisdictions in these countries make policy changes that are designed to diminish the mining investment in their region is ultimately short-term thinking. And uh, I think probably the one that's the most harmful is the Texas change because Bitcoin mining participation in the demand response program could be a great demonstration of the viable capabilities of bringing Bitcoin mining to all different kinds of regions with different types of load capacities and needs. And it could be proving a point in an area that historically has had some really tragic power problems during summer and winter. And by artificially limiting it like this, uh, we kind of we won't we won't get to create that use case in Texas. It's kind of like kneecapping before it gets to really take off and demonstrate uh, its possible value or its possible downsides. We won't know either way. Right. And I think the theme of this week's episode is going to be it's pretty hard to understand complex phenomena like Bitcoin, because if you have the point of view that we need to control emissions, we need to provide cheap power to consumers, therefore, we need to free up power from being wasted on things that are bad for the environment, you know, allegedly like Bitcoin mining. And if we just remove that clearly wasteful, speculative, crazy thing that, you know, is antisocial, then there'll be more power left for everyone else. And I think that might at a simple level sound like a reasonable, you know, course of action. It turns out based on our research and power professionals and mining operations that actually power isn't like a reservoir that you draw down. Power is like a constant thing that's being outputted. And when we use power, like we have to balance the use and the output. And it's incredibly complicated because if there's too much power and not enough use, the grid uh, sort of like overloads and infrastructure starts catching on fire and breaking. It's very expensive. If there's too much demand and not enough output, then the uh, grid has a brownout or a blackout, which can also cause a lot of damage and is 
really dangerous because when the lights go off, you know, people driving around, stoplights are are off, they might have an accident or hospitals uh, might lose power, you know, people could just die. So it's this balance. And so the concept of these demand response programs is that because Bitcoin miners can use a lot of power, they can buy their power in forward contracts that allow the grid to plan for capacity. And then if there's like sudden spikes in demand, uh, the contract that the Bitcoin miners have stipulates that if there's a huge spike in demand, the power grid is allowed to turn them off to basically say, you know, the power we're pushing towards you, we're going to redirect it towards homes and hospitals and everything. And the point of view of the Bitcoin community is, man, this is so great because it's almost like the Bitcoin mine is kind of like a battery predictable demand. They're always there. They're consuming power. And then if there's an issue on the grid, you can redirect that power to where it's needed. The Bitcoin miners will turn off. You have to pay them for that, but they're sort of providing like insurance on the grid or, or, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. And, you know, from what I can tell, no one outside of a select few power professionals and Bitcoiners thinks like that. Everyone else thinks it's just bad to have Bitcoin mining on the grid. And it seems very difficult to change people's mind on this. Honestly, I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's like we've repeated this many times, but the New York Times is publishing articles that uh, even today are repeating a lot of uh, pretty debunked mining FUD about how Bitcoin mining on a grid is bad and increases the use of fossil fuel emissions, even on grids that are majority renewable energy. I've struggled to understand how they make that conclusion. It seems pretty fallacious in my view, but that's where we are. Again, I I go back to the idea of maybe we should have called it something other than mining because we're we're not mining, right? It's It's an issuance schedule. We're issuing Bitcoin. We're producing Bitcoin, something else. The mining thing just, it just plays right into this phenomenon we're experiencing now. It's a competitive thing, you know, like you and I have talked about. It's it's a new industry and it's moving into entrenched industry space playing now with, you know, that kind of uh, scale. You're going to kind of get stomped sometimes. Um, I hate to see it. I really do. And I find it quite frustrating. But, you know, it's sort of like a river, Bitcoin. It's not going to stop. Bitcoin doesn't care. It's just sort of when you build a dam, it just sort of begins to flow around it. It might take time, but inevitably just works around it. I think this week has had some pretty high profile news that's critical of Bitcoin. There was this New York Times piece, and we'll link to the kind of takedown of the article that um, Riot Platforms, a Bitcoin miner, published. You you know, you can read both and kind of see what uh, makes sense to you. There was the Wall Street Journal piece about the Bitcoiner who, quote unquote, hacked the Silk Road and was arrested in Georgia. But that happened last year. And the Wall Street Journal publishes an article about it this week. So I think the the zeitgeist is kind of anti-Bitcoin in the kind in the, you know, more mainstream media sources right now. Then you have these negative anti-Bitcoin sort of rulings in Texas and, you know, this thing that relating to data centers in Sweden. So it does feel like there's kind of a turn against Bitcoin in the popular mind. At the same time, the Bitcoin price is shooting up over 30,000. I mean, goodness, it's the best performing asset of the year, risk adjusted. That's pretty wild. And it seems like a lot of Bitcoiners and financial market participants are viewing this as the beginning of a new bull market, which is just weird and interesting because financial market signs are very bullish, but on the regulatory front, it just seems quite uh, potentially (laughs) negative. It seems wild. Not where we would have seen it going. You know, I mean, recession looming, according to the Fed note, meeting notes themselves, liquidity 
uh, inbound liquidity in the crypto market at the lowest levels uh, in probably five, six, seven years. And yet Bitcoiners don't want to sell. So there's just not a lot of coins, not very many stats out there. And so the price is holding. I honestly, a month ago, I would have predicted the exact opposite. When the back end exchanges between the banks and like Coinbase and all the others got shut down, I thought, well, here we go. Price going to slide. And it went the exact opposite direction. And if that doesn't remind you to stay humble, I don't know what will. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, April 14th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On this week's show, we are going to cover a pretty interesting critique of Bitcoin from an author that did some research, but still kind of misses some fundamental details. And so that's the theme of it's pretty hard to understand a complex, nuanced thing. And I hope that we can kind of take a poke at this article in a way that is fair to the author, doesn't turn them into a straw man. And maybe we could get some critique from our listeners, because sometimes when I read this stuff and I and I say, oh, well, they've missed this. I wonder if I'm missing the critique, you know, if, if, if I've been in Bitcoin too long and I can't see the legitimate critique. I, I don't think it's there, but I, you know, it is good to put that out to the community and see, you know, what everyone else thinks. In altcoin news, the Ethereum Shanghai hard fork has been enabled, which allows users to finally unstake their staked Ethereum after two years. There's some sort of interesting news around that that we'll just touch on. It's kind of a contrast to Bitcoin in many ways. And so is a useful mirror, I think, to developments in the Bitcoin space. Arthur Hayes, our favorite co-founder of BitMEX, is now shilling his investments in Ethereum staking infrastructure. Unfortunately, he started a family office with a wild name. It's called Maelstrom. And I think his blog posts are going to become less interesting because now that he's kind of systematically investing in altcoins and altcoin infrastructure on what he views as a bull market upswing, he's just going to be pumping those bags. But, you know, maybe we take a peek at what he's saying anyway. In Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 246. And this Optech focuses on off-chain lightning channel rebalancing that builds on channel factories. So we can remind everyone what a channel factory is again, and we can try our best to summarize this proposal. I have listened to many podcasts where people have talked about this, and I have not heard anyone successfully summarize this proposal. I'm convinced no one actually understands it, but we'll we'll take a poke. Also, friend of the show, Darth Coin, has a great post about Noster. So we'll talk about Noster, a decentralized social media app created by Fiat Jaff, a longtime Bitcoiner. And it has really interesting integrations with Ellen Bits, which is kind of a multi-purpose plug-in system for Lightning Nodes. Then we have some boosts, and that's our show. That's a lot of show. I thought it was going to be a, a quick one, but then I just kept on talking. Yeah. I'm a little worried. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll get through it together somewhere somehow now where did you find this article random ramblings a systemic critique of bitcoin's value proposition because i i found it a, a great read uh, yeah i love that it's a systemic critique too right so you know it's uh this this is going to be a good one this came courtesy of our fantastic bitcoin matrix chat room 
you know, because we're always trying to kick around in their different uh, potential critiques as well, because it isn't just an echo chamber. And you and I have said on the show before that we're always looking for a really solid critique that we can kind of dig into and kind of do a little bit of checking against our own biases. And so Zor Alchemist shared this with us in the uh, Bitcoin discussion room on the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix server and uh, talked a little bit about some of the core points. You know, the author really focuses a lot on the 51% attack idea. And so that was sort of the focus of our conversation in the Matrix Room. Great plug for the Matrix Room. Some really interesting conversations in there. And uh, we appreciate anyone who participates. This article is great because I think you can read it and learn a little bit more about Bitcoin. Uh, The author has read the Bitcoin white paper and I think comes at it with a pretty critical eye, which is not a crime. But I believe that this writer doesn't have a lot of Bitcoin experience because I think they draw their conclusions from the white paper and they might not realize that the white paper is kind of a loose proposal for a system. It doesn't define the system. The system is decentralized and organically grows and changes and adapts over time. So if you base your critique off the white paper, you're going to run into a trap because the white paper is, it's the starting point. It's not the current state of Bitcoin. And Ron, the writer, thinks that the value propositions of Bitcoin are that it's non-inflatable. True. We, we agree with that. It has irreversible transactions. We agree with that. Irreversible digital transactions is a innovation. He then says reduced fraud. And I think this is something that's taken from the white paper. And I think we can take a poke at that. I don't think it it's a particularly meaningful uh, point here. Lower transaction costs. Again, this is a an easy, uh, easily confused point. And that Bitcoin should enable practical small transactions. I think that's also inferred from the white paper. Yeah, when I read through this entire paper, you could call it that, I suppose, or blog post or ramblings. I mean, it's long. But when I read through it, what I see are a couple of fundamental assumptions that are then used to critique Bitcoin. And I think you're right. Those assumptions come from reading the white paper and assuming it's universally true today, 13 or more years later. You know, he talks in here about how it's hard to say Bitcoin has any value because... If it did, then why would it still be, you know, compared to the U.S. dollar for its price? But what he fails to appreciate is that every country (laughs) pegs sats to their local price. That's just kind of how an exchange works. You know, that's just an indication of maybe he doesn't quite get the whole thing. But the part where he seems to really kind of focus in, and he doesn't, I didn't really get any specific details on how it would functionally work. But the area that I thought was interesting and the part that caught the Matrix Room's attention was the idea that it's actually pretty feasible to do a 51% attack if you try real hard. And then you could you could just go after the network. You know, if you've got somehow more than all of the compute power that's out there right now and could take over 51 percent of the network, uh, then you've basically undercut Bitcoin. Right. And this is the best part, because Ron, the writer, is a software engineer who's worked on cryptographic projects. So he understands digital signatures. He knows about Hashcash, which is Adam Back, the founder, one of the founders of Blockstream. I think their current CEO He created Hashcash as a way to prevent email spam where you run some CPU cycles to prove that you've done some work before you send an email and then emails that haven't done work, you just ignore. So this would, you know, prevent spamming attacks on email lists. So he understands the concept of digital signatures and hashing. And what he points out is that essentially if you have a uh, 51% of the Bitcoin mining hash rate, then you kind of get to control the network. And I that's not strictly true, but let's just give him that. And his argument is, if you want to 
purchase the miners to do a 51% attack, that would require hundreds of billions of dollars. And there really isn't the supply chain to kind of build up that miner infrastructure. I don't know if he recognizes that. That's the key of it. It's not possible to buy 51% of the Bitcoin miners in the world, because if you were to do so, you would drive up the price of miners. It would it would become very uneconomical. And the miners are somewhat distributed, though there is a lot of hash rate in the US right now. But if you are able to rent miners, if you can rent hash rate, then Ron thinks that there is an economic attack where if you can basically borrow money to rent hash to perform a 51% where you always get all of the Bitcoin from new blocks because you throw away any blocks that you didn't win and you don't build on anyone else's blocks, you only build on your own blocks, then you can pay for the rented hash rate with the Bitcoin that you'll definitely make by 51%ing the network. Yeah, and I think a key point is the supply chain aspect of it. Like you just couldn't, you couldn't scrape it all together. And if you could, well, those would be going to high paying customers who are already building rigs and selling it on the market right now. So you'd, you'd have to pay a real high price, a real premium to source all of that. And just the amount of sourcing, because we are talking something 300 million something hash rate. I mean, the hash rate has exploded since January. The hash rate has been on a bull run since uh, January. So the amount of, even in the last three months, since he probably started working, working on this piece, the hash rate has exploded. So just it's all of it. And then to get there and then just end up eventually devaluing the currency anyways, as an end result, it just doesn't really seem feasible to me. See how you wouldn't be able to cover your cost. This is cool because it shows you that you can understand a lot of the system, but then your kind of uh, projection, your model of how to attack it sort of breaks down if you don't grab, uh, you know, the social element. And I think this is also part of his argument, which is that, oh, Bitcoin is not actually just protected by math and energy. There's all also a social element too. Therefore, it's misleading. And I think that anyone who studied the history of money and banking and finance will say, yeah, no, duh. Every monetary standard is a social technology. And so even Bitcoin, which is a more technological money, has this social element. It's not a it's not being hidden. It's out there in the open. The thing about renting hash rate to perform a 51% attack is one, it's impossible to rent uh, such a huge amount of hash rate because what we've discovered over the past couple of years is that the business models of miners are very, very difficult. And it's just not profitable to make upfront capital investments and then rent out that mining hardware to someone else for a competitive rate. There's no incentive to do that. No one's ever done that. Every hash rate rental scheme has always been a scam. It's called cloud mining. Look it up. It's always a scam. Never do it. So the theoretical rental attack is really very unrealistic because he's saying, well, one, imagine if the way mining worked economically was different. So miners would be willing to rent out hash rate at a reasonable price. And then imagine if I could rent it at this arbitrary price, which I think is fair, then I could do this. So, you know, you're, you've basically uh, constrained reality twice to uh, do your attack. And then the second thing is that if you start 51%ing the network 
and you have to pay for your mind hash rate from the benefits of your 51% attack, well, what is that going to do to the Bitcoin price? It's probably going to tank it. And and we can see with, you know, panics in the TradFi system, TradFi doesn't move as fast as Bitcoin, but Bitcoin moves fast. And so I could imagine the price falling, I don't know, 99% easily. That's what's happened with the other altcoins that have experienced 51% attacks because they don't have the hash power that Bitcoin has. Because again, part of what makes Bitcoin valuable is its network effect. And the crappy knockoffs that have tried to copy Bitcoin don't get the network effect. And then somebody, a group of people generally, own a ginormous portion of the mining capacity. And when that happens, the price drops. Even if it happens accidentally because a pool becomes particularly big and it's not even nefarious, the community panics and the price drops. And we've seen this happen over and over again with the altcoins. They teach us what would happen if it happened to Bitcoin. The computational resources, go look at a hash chart. It's phenomenal. So I think this does betray a misunderstanding. I actually, though, think that because you have to understand these nuances, people won't catch this. And then throughout this piece, Rotom is kind of constantly telling people what a great job he is doing. And there is a certain type of, you know, kind of alpha geek that recognizes other alpha geek game and these kind of really hot take statements. And it, it works for them and they take it really seriously. Um, so like in part six, he says, and this is a quote, as long as I'm tearing Bitcoin apart, I might as well go all the way and critique its other claimed benefits to review. Those are not inflatable, irreversible transactions, reduced fraud, lower transaction costs, practical small transactions. I'll address each of these in turn. Now, I, the reason why I inflect that tone is because that's that is kind of hostile and it's kind of arrogant. And I think these are all areas that are worth discussing, but it doesn't need to be that kind of tone right there is to get shares on social media, is to get retweets and to get people submitting it to confirmation bias circles. That's what those types of statements are for. Do we talk like that? Have we been in on the Internet too long? And so we've turned into sort of edgelords. No, th okay. that is hyperbole and it's it's completely unnecessary. And what's kind of sad about it is each one of these categories just again betray his misunderstanding of the technology he's proclaiming to uh, eviscerate. He could be a Bitcoiner if he's uh, done this much work. I know, right? Let's just uh, uh, punch down on some of these um, critiques. So I quote, Bitcoin might be inflation free at the moment, but only for the same reason that some fiat currencies are inflation free, because the people who control them have decided as a matter of policy that inflation is undesirable. The only thing that distinguishes Bitcoin is that its policymaking is based on one hash, one vote. It's completely wrong. He read the white paper and said one hash, one vote. That was something that Satoshi wrote, and Satoshi was wrong about that. Bitcoin monetary policy is enshrined in the Bitcoin consensus code. That code is run by both miners and node operators who validate mined blocks. We already had a block size war and discovered that miners can't unilaterally change the rules on the network. They can't change the amount of Bitcoin. They can't change the size of the blocks because if they do that and nodes like the one in Chris's studio, like the one in my office, they will reject those blocks if you change the software. And so I think that Ron doesn't quite understand that the decentralization of the Bitcoin network, it isn't just because decentralization is a value. I don't actually think decentralization is a value. I think that it's because this is the only way to create a monetary policy that one party can't unilaterally change. 
because to change the rules of Bitcoin, you need to get all the nodes to upgrade. And that's really, really difficult. You need a huge amount of social consensus. And it's not a secret. The technology enables a more sticky and difficult social consensus that prevents big players from just taking control of the system. He also critiques the irreversible transactions. Oh, sure, that's a strength. I've also heard this critique that, well, it's a weakness, because what if somebody steals your Bitcoin? There's no authority that can step in and reverse that transaction. But if you have an authority that can step in and reverse a transaction, then you have an authority that can weaponize the financial system, which we are seeing happen right now. We see it only create more and more friction, and we have more and more people that are bankless than ever, as the system has more and more points of control and management. There seems to be an inverse effect. And now there's that aspect of it, but it's it's similar to when Bitcoin talks about itself as cash. It's that kind of way of thinking of when you hand somebody a $20 bill, you're not going to get it back from them unless they want to give it back to you or you attack them. And that's sort of the mindset with Bitcoin is same with gold. If you were to shave off or give somebody a gold bar, it's the same scenario. And uh, that, I think, is core to how something like Bitcoin works. And you can build systems on top of that that allow an account for returns and things like that. But the fundamental layer that is Bitcoin needs to have that finality. Right. That's the entire model to create final digital transactions that didn't exist before Bitcoin. I don't think we need to go through all of the other points. I would just say that the author doesn't know about the Lightning Network. Yeah, so that's the other big one, right? He critiques the small transactions thing. You know, one interesting aspect of Bitcoin is because it's a programmable money, you can create things on top of it, including Lightning Channels that enable instantaneous final settlement transactions with some security trade-offs. The trade-offs being, if you want to do Lightning, you need to have a computer on the internet most of the time, if not all the time, for it to work. And, you know, that's a cost. There's complexity there. There's risk because that's a hot wallet, but it does enable super fast payments that are final. I want to just read the conclusion. I think the main value of Bitcoin in the long run will be as a store of value compared to precious metals, but easier to move around, allowing you to reliably store value without having to physically store and protect an artifact other than a secret key has real value and might be enough to sustain Bitcoin over the long run. But if Bitcoin offers anything of value as a medium of exchange, I don't see it. So I think that if he'd started the article like this, that would have been a much better conversation because I think that the store of value is actually the easiest value property to see because Bitcoin as digital gold is a really easy argument to make. It just it just works for a lot of people. Yeah, and it's the most provable scarce asset we have, right? You can't even prove gold is this scarce. Right. It's not. Medium of exchange is difficult because the dollar is the world reserve currency right now. The dollar still dominates all financial transactions. And so seeing the small network that's doubling in size every month or, you know, or year and like just getting faster at an exponential rate, it's very easy to look at that. It's like the, uh, you know, the train coming into the station. It looks really small in the distance, but then it shoots through the station super fast and now it's past you. I think this is kind of what Bitcoin is doing. And so it'll be hard to see the usefulness as a medium of exchange because it'll happen so fast, I think. It'll be hard to perceive because we'll still be using the dollar. Then suddenly Bitcoin will be uh, used by people who you know, maybe don't have access to the dollar system or will discover quite quickly that there are drawbacks and flaws to the dollar system that are making it less good over time. And, and not only that, but even if some back end currency standard is switched from dollar to something else, the end users won't even be aware of it. This was the big lesson I took away following and passionately advocating for Linux since the late 90s. Inevitably, it did work. Everybody ended up a Linux user. They just don't even know they run Linux. It's 
in their pocket. It's on their Chromebook. It's on the cloud server they're accessing and they access it and they are Linux users in a totally transparent way. And I initially envisioned everybody working with Linux, using the Linux desktop, understanding the Linux terminology and, you know, the the name Red Hat and Ubuntu and all of these things I thought would become commonplace amongst everyone. And that's not what happened. Linux became the back end to AWS and Azure and Android. And it just became an implementation layer because that's what happens with a lot of this foundational open source technology is very, very successful, extremely successful products get built on top of them. And that's what the end user interacts with is that product. It is hard to predict the future, and we don't pretend to. We just have a good feeling about this thing. Yeah, and uh, so far, it's been going in a great direction. You know, I, Dad, I remember one of the times I did an in-person transaction for a Bitcoin, an entire Bitcoin. Uh, actually, no, <laughs> 1.5 Bitcoin. It was 1.5 Bitcoin, and uh, I remember it being, I felt so sick to my stomach that I was spending $200 because the market price for Bitcoin was $120. And I was going to do this transaction in person. And that was just what, and you know, that was just sort of the price of doing it in person like that at the time. And I was sick to my stomach that I got 1.5 Bitcoin for $200 cash. That was a long time ago. And if you take a long view at this kind of thing, uh, it's pretty hard not to be optimistic about where it's going. And some people are quite optimistic about the Ethereum Shanghai upgrade. Boy, no kidding. Why are we talking about Ethereum on a Bitcoin podcast? Good question. I find it like kind of interesting to sort of see Bitcoin's younger offshoot system created by the founder of Bitcoin magazine, Vitalik Buterin. I don't know how kind of bonkers it is. It's like the anti-Bitcoin, right? It's uh, the Bitcoin mirror universe it's, it's for the Star Trek fans out there. It's for everybody that wanted to do something that they couldn't do in Bitcoin. There was Ethereum. And uh, it was hard to it was hard to say what direction things would go when staking and unstaking, I should say, was enabled. Um, so far, it seems positive as we speak right now. The price is, uh, you know, it's doing well. Community seems really jazzed. Uh, the general kind of hive think I've seen from the Ethereum community is staking is now more viable. And so it's bullish because now now that everybody can withdraw, it's like a real system. And now that it's a real system, serious people invest in not just the uh, DGENs. <laughs> that is the the sentiment that I think is expressed by this article from Coinmetrics. Coinmetrics is a company that compiles data for different blockchains and then sells that data to, I guess, mostly traders. But the switched from proof of work to proof of stake involved creating a new chain on Ethereum or for Ethereum called the Beacon Chain. And then the proof of work Ethereum chain, I think they refer to that as the execution layer and the Beacon Chain is the consensus layer. And then they somehow sort of move these chains together through this great merge event that happened last year that they were very proud of, that there was no downtime. It seemed to have gone pretty well. But on this Beacon Chain, the way that the chain is extended with new transaction is via this proof of stake model. And in proof of stake, instead of uh, you know finding valid hashes by pushing electricity through a graphics card or a application specific integrated circuit, you know, a little mining machine. All you do is you put 32 Ethereum into a special address called a staking address. And then 
as long as you are online and your node is working, eventually it'll be your turn to add another block to the network. And you just go ahead and do that. And there's no cost to you. And I think we've linked in the past to a lot of research that demonstrates that basically proof of stake uh, doesn't really have a cost. It doesn't really have inherent security and incentives. And so there's a lot of complexity built into the system that essentially simulates proof of work. And there are checkpoints in the chain. So you can't go back and change the chain history because it's costless to create a new chain history since you don't have to do all of the valid hashing work. There are lots of issues with this. Also, I would point out one thing to keep in mind is all of this is, is quite tweaked and changed on the regular, and the node operators have no choice but to accept the updates because they do difficulty bombs and other things that make it mandatory for everyone participating in the network to accept the new version of the software, which is not how it operates at all in the Bitcoin sense. The, no the node operators and the miners are absolutely at their own will to choose which software up updates and implementations they choose. Yeah, on Bitcoin, you don't need to worry about updates. Like maybe if you hear, oh, there's a, like a security issue or a, a DDoS vulnerability, you should probably update. Go ahead and do that. But with Ethereum, if you don't pay attention to your Ethereum node for six months, you're going to be on a different chain that will not be talking to any other nodes. So this upgrade is a hard fork. And that kind of demonstrates the centralization of the Ethereum development community, because there are big companies, Consensus, the Ethereum Foundation, and they pay developers to build this and then they push out that code. So it, to me, it kind of looks like companies running the development of a chain. I think that sounds like you could probably regulate them if you wanted to. Or co-opt or just identify individuals and target them and spy on them. I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of complexity there. And I'll just point out, it is designed intentionally to create an ecosystem of companies that are sort of intermediaries, like your Lidos and your Coinbases, and they don't necessarily follow the schedule of the core Ethereum developers that are getting paid full-time wages to create Ethereum features. They follow their own schedule with their own developers that are getting paid full-time to develop features for their own specific platforms that utilize Ethereum staking. And so you can have, the, now we're at the stage, it's just amazing to watch, where Ethereum can roll out a new feature like the incredible ability to unstake and some of the staking providers aren't necessarily ready and so you can't actually unstake absolutely an interesting situation because for the past i think two or three years where the beacon chain has been live if you had 32 ethereum you could put it into one of these staking contracts and earn rewards that accrue to that contract but you couldn't withdraw them you know, obviously 32 Ethereum is, I think, $64,000 today. It's quite a lot of money. And companies like Lido showed up and they provide a service where you can send them smaller amounts of Ethereum and they'll stake it somewhere. And then they'll give you a Lido token, the STETH token, staked ETH token, and you can trade that. And what I find fascinating is like no one realized or no one chooses to notice that this breaks the security model of staking because the entire purpose of staking is that it has to be costly to lock up your Ethereum. Well, if I have $1,000 of Ethereum, I send it to Lido, they send me $980 of staked ETH. Yeah, it doesn't seem like staking is so costly, you know? And if I'm still earning income from that staked ETH, you know, it, it essentially centralizes staking. And it turns out that Lido is um, holding about 30% of Ethereum staking, which is, you know, it's a big chunk. 
kind of similar to a Bitcoin mining pool, but the difference is Lido takes custody. So they have custody of these coins. They couldn't previously withdraw them, but now they technically can. And they're uh, apparently right now on a, a month-long upgrade to enable staking withdrawals. So, you know, that's all fine. That's all fine and good. But what's kind of interesting about this is, one, staking is not mining. So I think it's easy to conflate a staking provider like Lido with a mining pool. It's totally different. Mining pools don't take custody of your Bitcoin. They don't take custody of your ASICs. If you don't like your mining pool or you don't like the way they're run or whatever, you can point your hash at a different mining pool. So it's much more open, much more punishing to bad actors than this custodial staking model. And, you know, fundamentally, it's not clear that staking necessarily creates good incentives for maintaining this network. It creates a large amount of complexity. It creates a huge number of intermediaries because Ethereum has sort of data aggregators, they have validators, they have block builders, block proposers. I mean, it's it's a very complicated system. Yeah, and it's also not clear yet how they're going to handle a really large operator that is misbehaving or is censoring or something like that. You know, they can slash funds, but if it's if it's millions of users' funds in a Coinbase account, it's not exactly clear how the team is going to handle that. And this has come up, and Vitalik basically just shrugged it off and said, oh, we'll figure it out when we get there. It's not going to be a problem. And then, you know, some of the exchange CEOs chimed in, oh, yeah, totally. No, you can trust us. It's not going to be a problem. Let's not worry about that right now, um, which is obviously means it's going to be a problem. And they have to talk about that because Ethereum did roll back the chain in 2016 after their DAO hack. Someone hacked a reckless smart contract on Ethereum that contained a huge amount of Ethereum. I think like, was it like 20 or 30% of all Ethereum ended up in this DAO contract? Yep, yep. And this guy in Singapore, who Laura Shin writes about in her book, the I think it's in the Cryptopians book, she writes about this guy who, you know, it's pretty clear that this dude hacked that smart contract and then, you know, some good hackers came in and started hacking it in, a, in another direction. And Ethereum rallied around Vitalik and the other founders like Joe Lubin. And they decided that this was such a setback that they would just reset the chain. They would just fork out the DAO. And I mean, if you were just doing your business, spending Ethereum, and you weren't aware that the DAO hack was going on, well, guess what? You got screwed too. So... <laughs> You know, it's uh, it really speaks to the fact that this is a, a, you know, at least was an incredibly centralized system. And we argue it still is quite centralized. One of the things, the little interesting details in that story, too, is that so Ethereum ultimately did a hard fork, rolled everything back. But because that was so controversial, there was first the soft fork idea. And OK, so we think we've got this figured out. We've come up with this clever soft fork. The issue was a bug was discovered in Ethereum's code, and it was so complex that they couldn't figure out how to fix it. But the soft fork exposed yet another bug, not just the DAO hack bug, but another flaw. And I don't remember the details of it, but it was so complicated. They're like, we we don't know how to solve this in time. And so then they had to go to the hard fork option. Like that was not their plan A or even maybe their plan B. And it was a massively unpopular decision. It was very confusing, especially like you say to people who didn't follow it closely. And you would think it would be an experience you'd never want to repeat. Only now they're coming up to a situation where they don't necessarily control that particular decision. And at least if they do control it, like with some sort of time bomb or something like that, they're going to have an extremely difficult situation when it's somebody like Lido or Coinbase. And that's just built into the way this is set up. And that's a trade-off in complexity 
in trying to scale a blockchain. FYI, blockchains don't scale by doing faster transactions. There's an Ethereum block every six seconds, I think. So this means that it's a very complex code base. Performant nodes need to be run in data centers, so they have a highly centralized network. So, you know, there's a lot that we don't like here. At the same time, I was honestly expecting that when unstaking was enabled, there might be just a massive run out of Ethereum because people have been locked up for years. They have a lot of staking rewards. Being locked up as an Ethereum staker might not have been a very uh, relaxing experience. We may still see that when macro headwinds come. But not only that, Dad, I honestly expected them to kick this can down the road a little bit. I kind of thought, you know, if they could somehow delay this for a bit, see where the economy is going, keep those funds locked up, they would try to take that route. You know, um, because, you know, you you know how long it took just to to get this far to get the beacon chain online. So I thought, oh, no, no, it's going to be a year out. There always there'll be a way they'll make this thing last forever. But to their credit, uh, they they got it. They got there. Um, And I I haven't heard any horror stories about things blowing up. So I think credit where credit is due. They actually did ship this update. I still think it's a horrendous system, but, you know, they actually shipped it. They didn't kick the can for a year like I thought they might. And the thing that I didn't understand is that if you're staking with more than 32 ETH in your node, you're not getting any benefit from all of the ETH over 32. So there is an incentive to essentially unstake all of the staking rewards you earned over the past few years and then restake them with additional funds to get another 32 ETH staking node going. They have built a system that does incentivize a certain sort of holding Ethereum behavior. And, you know, honestly, I don't think it is particularly useful outside of a sort of self-licking ice cream cone of financial speculation, because I think that the centralization of development, leadership, the centralization of nodes mean that this is not particularly useful as decentralized permissionless money. I don't think it enhances freedom or has the anti-fragility to do like really interesting disruptive, controversial things. And that's fine. You know, if you don't think those things I've described are important or interesting, Ethereum is waiting for you. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested to watch it and see what happens in the future. Yeah, where I think a lot of Ethereum folks and I disagree is I think they see it the way you do. You know, we're not we're not trying to disrupt the global financial system. We're not trying to create a new gold, although some of them think it's like I think they're joking, but they think it's ultrasound money. I think a lot of them realistically look at it as kind of a platform that you can build things on top of financial systems on top of. I think it's one of the reasons why they're so jazzed about things like DeFi and all that kind of stuff. But I think ultimately that operates under a faulty premise that these ginormous multinational banks are going to base their back-end future transactional systems on a community-created platform like Ethereum. It's it's just not... When, they could just clone it. Because Ethereum isn't really offering some of the core benefits that Bitcoin does, you're, you're not really getting anything other than you could just with your own chain and your own blockchain, and they do that already. They're already doing that. I don't really expect them to adopt Ethereum as a back-end infrastructure. You know, you're not going to see um, MasterCard doing their payments on a ZK roll-up network. It's just not going to happen. If they even did something like that, it'd be their own invention, purpose-built for what they want. If they're not going to use something that is a sound open protocol, then they're going to build their own thing. We see that all the time with everything in the technology space. And this thing about Ethereum is they really see themselves in the technology aspect of this, the technology space, right? The Bitcoin the Bitcoin crowd has a lot more of the monetary philosophy and focus, but Ethereum has a lot more of the technology focus. Problem is, is technology can be commoditized and then people just build their own, for better or for worse, usually for worse. And this leads in really nicely to Arthur Hayes' latest 
post Chappella's show, which is, a, I think, a play on words of the upgrade Ethereum hard fork name, which is like Shanghai Chappella or something. I don't know. They have this naming scheme. And what's interesting is that Arthur has been talking a lot about how to move away from custodial TradFi modeled platforms that deal in cryptocurrencies because these are so vulnerable to fraud and regulation. It's very understandable why he feels that way. His platform, BitMEX, was heavily regulated and he was charged with a crime as a result of that. FTX exploded, Mt. Gox exploded. I mean, there will be more centralized platforms that explode. And I think that he's correct in identifying that these centralized failures are a risk to Bitcoin, broader crypto, whatever, because these systems only work when people are interested in them and find them useful. And if you keep on getting rug pulled and your funds seized and frozen, it's a bad experience and many people never want to think about it again and they they quit. These are all points I sort of agree with. What's interesting is that he is kind of centering on Ethereum and this uh, self-staking ability. He identifies Lido as a centralization risk for Ethereum, and his company has invested in a decentralized Ethereum staking alternative. I am honestly not interested in this model. I don't think it's you know particularly important, especially as Bitcoiners. That said, Arthur is kind of pushing for Ethereum as a platform for financial applications. And this is part, I think, of a wider investment thesis that he's talked about a lot in the past and a lot of OG Bitcoiners have talked about, which is essentially the first page of Alt's thesis, where when you feel like a bull market is starting up, you go onto CoinMarketCap and you look at the altcoins that are under the top 10 and you start gobbling those up for pennies. Because when Bitcoin starts pumping, those alts start to run too, because they're illiquid altcoins with no value. But DGENs gamble on them. And if you bought them in the bear market when they were worth pennies, then when they're worth a dollar, you made mad gains. And that's, you know, a, a thing that Arthur does. He talks about it and um, he expresses that through different cycles in different ways. So it was the DeFi protocol tokens, like the token for all of the sushi swap, whatever smart contracts that he was trying to pump a few years ago. And now he's pumping some sort of Ethereum derivative thing. I think one change is that now that he has a family office, I imagine that family offices can't exclusively or don't want to exclusively invest in illiquid altcoins that are hot garbage. So they also try to act like mature investors by investing in companies that provide services. And I think that that's a very tough place to uh, be in terms of crypto businesses. They're very unstable. They're very risky. But uh, that's kind of his bags that he's pumping here. And uh, I just think it's interesting because it, it ties into this whole Lido thing where now that you can unstake, you can potentially move away from these uh, centralized staking pools to something that, uh, you know, sort of uh, maybe you stake with other people, but you have some ability to unstake, you know, kind of an interesting idea, I guess. But that's kind of necessary for Ethereum to be sufficiently decentralized to be a permissionless financial layer. That said, I don't think that Arthur and the people who make these arguments are thinking about the decentralization of the Ethereum network. Because sure, you're building your financial applications in this kind of incredibly convoluted, complicated, pseudo-decentralized way on top of Ethereum. But all of these Ethereum nodes are running in AWS. So I'm pretty sure I can take down your project if I'm the 
U.S. Attorney General, and I write some bean letters to AWS that says, hey, turn off the Ethereum stuff. So, you know, I think that that centralization of the network really limits its ability to do something interesting. And since financial regulation is tightening like a ratchet every year, I just don't see how this sort of activity is going to get the green light from regulators. And frankly, I think it needs the green light from regulators. Yeah, to me, it seems like fragility. It seems like they're building in additional fragility and it's particular fragility exposure to areas that are just going to get worse and worse. Like you mentioned, there's the regulation ratcheting, but it really takes just one national security instance where somebody did something with Ethereum that's connected to any one of these. And you're right, it's a phone call away and things start getting shut down and locked down. I mean, we saw just a taste of it with some sanctions. But I mean, I'm just thinking there's a Pentagon leak recently about the Ukraine war on Discord. And uh, I'm just speculating, but imagine if this individual had connections to some Ethereum funding and money or somebody had paid him or paid for this information using Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera. That would immediately change the situation for all of these systems. And that's where the fragility comes from. And when I hear about Texas lawmakers that are limiting Bitcoin, or I hear about these kinds of policies, and I think, well, it doesn't really affect Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't care. That meme means something. Bitcoin doesn't care because it's decentralized. It's untouchable. It's a peer-to-peer phenomenon. It's never going back in the bottle or the tube, as it were. That's the difference here. And uh, when I read this, what I think to myself is how stressful. What Arthur is talking about is an incredible amount of things to keep track of and manage. And watching market signals and being you know, active in echo chambers on social media that talk about this stuff all the time and having to constantly obsess about all these individual crap coins just to make a little money instead of just focusing on life, having a great life and stacking sats just waiting and not worrying about it. Like the amount of energy and focus and life force that goes in to making money off of all of these first page coins is incredible. When you could just stack sats and take that energy and invest it in your own life and your family and the things around you and your own education and your own health. Here, here. I'm just thinking of an anecdote from the, the work week. I was working on this problem of decommissioning storage. And whenever we do this, the storage team always has a problem. So I had a whole bunch of people and I was talking to them, was trying to figure out how to solve it. And the data center admin comes up behind me and he says, just give up. Whatever you do, it's going to be wrong. Some people will never be happy. And reading about Ethereum people talking about how they're decentralized enough to not be regulated, I kind of want to say that to them. You're being very... positive right now. You're being very optimistic. If they have the means, ultimately they will. And I'm not making a political statement with that. It's just how systems work. If they have the capability, at some point they will have the moral reason, authority, whatever it might be to do it. It's just the nature of a system like this. And so the only way you can prevent that from happening is making it impossible for them to completely regulate it. So they're forced to compromise. And if your nodes are run by regulated businesses and your system does periodic hard forks, your regulator can say, listen, I need you to include KYC in the next hard fork. I need you to include the government whitelist server on the next hard fork. Maybe it sounds crazy, but this is completely possible from both a social consensus and a practical decentralization regulatory risk perspective. I mean, I have to imagine initially it would be just don't do transactions with these groups and nations, right? That's probably where it starts for national security reasons. You know, we don't want we don't 
want Russians getting rich off of Ethereum or the Chinese. And uh, and then it, it would just over time tighten. Um, we're seeing that exact thing happen with the financial system in general. Since uh, 9-11, it's only accelerated. So, yeah, uh, if they can, they will. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe they just ride it long enough to make a, make a few ETH and then they sell it and buy Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that does happen to some of them. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Office Hours, one of the podcasts I do over at Jupiter Broadcasting. And Office Hours 27 just came out. And tell me, after you listen to this episode, if you're not shocked, shocked by how good some of the AI podcasting systems have gotten now. I created a quick AI podcast where I just gave it the general outline, a couple of ideas to hit, and I told it to generate. And within three minutes, I had a podcast that was speculating about Brent's daily activities while he was staying at Alex's house with music, with an introduction and an outro, all generated within three minutes. And um, it's remarkable. So I play a few samples of some of the worst and some of the best in Office Hours 27, as well as talk about what Jupiter Broadcasting is thinking about doing with value for value over the remainder of the year. You can find it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, I welcome our AI overlords, and hopefully they will figure out how off-chain lightning channel rebalancing works, because <laughs> this week's Bitcoin Optech has a lot of diagrams, a lot of text, and I've read it, I kid you not, 10 times, and I'm still not sure how it works. <laughs> you just got to summarize it all in chat GPT. Maybe it'll explain it to us. That, that's all we need. Because I mean, oh, did you say off-chain? Yeah, exactly. Off-chain. I think it's a good idea to review what a channel factory is. A lightning channel is a two of two multi-signature transaction where Chris and I create a address together and send funds into it. So we both control it. But the way that we kind of maintain balances on my side and on Chris's side is we pre-sign a withdrawal transaction that gives us the current amount of Bitcoin we, we have according to the Lightning Protocol that determines how Bitcoin are moved back and forth along this theoretical channel, which is actually just a, an address on chain that's not moving. But we update our withdrawal transactions collaboratively with our two Lightning nodes to essentially off-chain create transactions that update the balance in this channel. Now, a channel factory is the same thing, except instead of a two of two multi-sig, we could have three, four, five, a hundred people in this transaction. And now all of these multiple people, they all have a withdrawal transaction from this one UTXO on the Bitcoin main chain, and they can make off-chain channel update transactions with everyone else in this channel. This gets complicated really fast. And so this uh, paper by John Law that's summarized in the Bitcoin Optech newsletter describes a strategy for essentially updating the channel state in these transactions in a sort of predictable, like, you know, no accidents kind of way, which is no joke, really hard to do. I honestly can't tell you how this works, but I'm really looking forward to the next summary because hopefully they can dumb it down for me. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like there's clearly advantages too, is to just reducing congestion on chain. That seems really great when you're doing this channel factory off chain. And of course, 
you can imagine if the Lightning Network were, were ever used for a large-scale day-to-day payments, you know, like coffee houses and pharmacies and whatnot, you'd want ways to quickly spin up channels that didn't congest the blockchain that could be also then, because they're off-chain, you know, cheaper, right? Less fees. So that also, when you're, when you're spinning things up quickly and shutting them down and all that kind of stuff that I imagine a large-scale production would do, it seems like it could become like uh, table stakes to operating the network. Right. And, you know, on the subject of additional features creating complexity, a two of two channel that is the current model of Lightning, it's much, much less complicated than having three parties in that channel or four. Because with the two of two situation, if my node goes offline, Chris can always send the uh, the withdrawal transaction to the blockchain and get his funds out. But when you have three or four users, it gets more complicated because, you know, what if only one user is offline? What if one of the four users is actually intentionally not signing update transactions because they want to hold the funds hostage or they're doing some kind of attack? It really gets very complicated. And it's not just a technical problem. There's also a social problem, too, because this is a social technology. And so when you enable new ways to have financial relationships, immediately people are going to figure out ways to make the maximum money from these financial relationships. And sometimes that's scamming, sometimes it's mean. And uh, this is a part of the challenge of creating cryptographic schemes that enable this to be a useful way to do microtransactions on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. One of the things that fascinates me about all of this is it's creating software in a very hostile environment, more so even than a web server, because it's, you know, the reward on the other end of a compromise is some serious money. But to the topic of complexity in general that you touched on, what I find superior to the approach of the Bitcoin community to the complexity that's in the Ethereum community is a great deal of the complexity in Ethereum land is baked into core Ethereum at the base layer. A great deal of that feature set has to be at that core layer of Ethereum, where in Bitcoin, Lightning is its own layer on top of what is an extremely solid, stable, consistent base layer that does have new features trickling in, some of them to enable more Lightning features. But the complexity, the the vast majority of that complexity is happening at the Lightning layer, not at the Bitcoin core layer. And I, I think it is hard for us to appreciate how much that matters today. In reality, in scale of things, if this is so early that we can't really appreciate that complexity and how much that complexity is going to matter in 15, 20 years. Right. Ethereum's complexity is only going to grow. They're not going to make it simpler. You only software only goes one direction. And so having this at the core architecture of Bitcoin today means that as complexity does grow, both in the Lightning Network and in core Bitcoin, 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 years down the road, this architecture is going to leave it at least at a better fighting chance to be a maintainable, usable, healthy piece of clean software. And I just can't I can't appreciate it more than ever right now as I think about this, that a lot of this is happening at the lightning layer or the liquid layer or whatever, whatever side chain people are working on and not at Bitcoin core. Right. One of the powerful aspects of a programmable layers based scaling approach is that you can permissionlessly build on it. And that creates a lot of innovation and not to move on too fast, but one of these innovations is Noster, 
which is a type of decentralized social media application. I, I wouldn't. I would say it's more than just a social media application. It's really a protocol, right? It's notes and other things through relays. So it's anything that you can do over a note-based system. So we're seeing Telegram clones, Stack Exchange clones, uh, blog clones, and Twitter clones. I think Twitter was where it initially became famous for, and you're seeing some of the most well-developed apps. But Noster itself, or Noster, is is kind of like a, a protocol. But it's not built directly on top of Bitcoin, but it integrates quite, quite well because there are ways to send lightning payments via Noster. And now there's a new guide from Darth Coin that demonstrates how you can use your Noster server relay account to integrate with LN Bits, which is, he says, think of it like WordPress for your Lightning node. It's, it's essentially an accounting system that enables you to have multiple accounts on a single Lightning node. So you could run a bunch of Lightning wallets for your family if you wanted or, or something like that. But it can tie in LN Bits with a Lightning node with your Noster setup to create a decentralized online market. I'm not 100% sure about the privacy implications of this, but it kind of sounds like this would be a way to just spin up dark markets in a structurally decentralized way, as opposed to the sort of previous centralized dark market model, a la White House, Hydra, Silk Road, where you actually do have a physical server somewhere run by an entity, and they're really doing their best to hide that server from global law enforcement. But with a Noster-based LN Bits marketplace, now you just have people on the web hosting stuff, and you can kind of tie all the stuff together using this Noster uh, protocol to kind of find everything that the Bitcoin dad is uh, posting for sale or everything that Jupiter Broadcasting has up there. So it's really, really interesting. And I love this guide because there are a lot of links to guides on how to get started with Noster, how to get started with LN Bits, guides about the Lightning Network. This is classic Darth coin, just really super useful. Bring it all together. Just super actionable. I mean, this thing's been translated into six languages. Like, wow, <laughs> it's amazing. And Darth coin put the URL to this substack in an opera turn at block height 785362. So this is on the Bitcoin blockchain as well. Wow. That's beautiful. It so I already have a copy of it, you're saying. What I appreciate about your observation here and Darth's uh, implication is uh, we are absolutely going to see a modern Silk Road on Noster now. Now that you say this, I, I can just, it's so clearly going to happen, especially with SATs and LN bits and the way the Noster relay network functions. And so all of us listening should prepare ourselves for the inevitable amount of FUD that will come as a result of that. There will be other viable markets, no doubt. I mean, one day you could have a, a, a viable Craigslist competitor that is powered by this thing. So, you, you know, who knows where this really goes, but it's going to totally start at the Silk Road end of the spectrum. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dadpod at ProtonMail.com or at Bitcoin Dadpod on Twitter. Sorry, I don't have a Noster pub key yet. Maybe soon. Consider joining the show Matrix channel using a client like Element. That's the easiest place to get in touch. Uh, sorry if I'm behind on my email. Aren't we all? We did get some great boosts this week, and our first one comes in from Bitcoin Lizard. I think he's our baller this week at 25,000 sats. And he writes, of course, the week the Bitcoin dad talks about Bitcoin Lizard's lightning channels, the lizard has to close them. A VPS I run was compromised, and I had to close down my LND node. But don't worry, the lizard will be back with new channels in a couple of weeks. 
Also, rest easy knowing that no coins were lost in the attack. Well, thanks for the boost, Bitcoin Lizard. And I think we were joking about this podcast being a long con to steal Bitcoin Lizard's lightning channel. So pretty wild that <laughs> there was an attack on his Aww. on the Lizard's VPS. I'd be curious to know time. anything he wants to share with the class so we can all learn. But I understand if there's some OPSEC issues there. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Was it the VPS provider who left a backdoor in, either malicious or just administrative and poorly secured? Was there a web server configuration issue? Do tell. Were you using SE Linux? Was it enabled? Be honest. User 632 boosts in a thousand sats. Great content. Keep it going. Thumbs up. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. The boosts help us do just that. Smart growth comes in with 5,000 sats. This electricity price thing is purely FUD. This is people who opted for the, quote, cheaper electric price and chose a variable rate versus fixed. Through the snowmageddon and this past summer, my prices have basically fluctuated because I opted for a, quote, higher fixed rate. I've got the electricity receipts to prove it. Well, thanks for the boost, Smart Growth. I think this is in reference to Texas and how you can buy a variable rate electrical utility plan. And thanks for the context. That's kind of what I suspected. One thing that's interesting about the U.S. is that there's a lot of super predatory options that businesses can offer you in the U.S. that might not be allowed in other countries because they're just so clearly disadvantageous to the customer. So only someone who was maybe um, wasn't paying attention or was sort of a little ignorant or didn't think things through would agree to it. A variable rate electrical plan is a crazy idea. And I think generally those are you get signed up by an aggressive door-to-door salesman who's working on commission. So how on earth could they make money selling you a utility with a salesman commission? And the answer is they're going to you know, scam you at some point, basically. While at least electricity isn't an essential service, so that's okay. Was that sarcasm? You said it's so deadpan. Yeah, that was sarcasm. So I'm just so disturbed by it. I think about all these all these industries that are commercial industries that are just essential services, and uh, it's not working out great. I don't know if I would uh, go for the alternative at this point in time either, though, so I'm just... You mean fully nationalizing it or something like that? Yeah, at this point, I think it'd be worse. So, you know, maybe if I if I lived in a different era, I would be for it. Username boosts in 5,000 sats. The thing I like about this show is that you guys read and understand the articles before you start recording. Please keep it up. <laughs> thanks for the uh, thanks for the boost. <laughs> yeah, we do. Except sometimes it doesn't help because, you know, this uh, off-chain lightning channel factory updates... Yeah. Also, uh, full disclosure, I've tried and given up on reading the Arthur Hayes articles, and I just wait for dad to break them down. So those are, I'm along for the ride. (laughs) We're up front on that, because (laughs) when you were reading those articles, you were so unhappy, you know, we couldn't do that. It was rough. It was rough. Uh, Yeah. Uh, MRMR or Mr. Mister comes in with 2323 sats and just says Fediment is legit. I'm excited about Fediment long term. So when people talk about, um, you know, a Bitcoin standard and replacing the dollar, I am generally fairly skeptical. But I think with technology like Fediment, it's actually possible. Not only that, but like local banking services that would be consumer first, that would be, you know, actually really beneficial to local communities and things like that. So I am very excited about Fediment long term. I think it's probably our best shot too to, to kind of having managed managed systems for people that uh, still are fair to them. And one cool thing about Fediment is that right now there's all this mainstream discussion about 
how do we prevent bank runs? And the design of Fediments is basically, wouldn't it be cool if we could have instant bank runs and no one ever lost any money? <laughs> you know, so it's very subversive and interesting. Completely different view on how custodial financial relationships should work. Faraday Fedora boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Thanks for the insight as always on the topic of countries using BTC, but limiting citizens for having access. I feel like we need a BTC backed CBDC on our big card of the current world financial dumpster fire. On the service, it would give uneducated users the ability to access the longtime savings ability of BTC, but on the back end, the government will have all the control it could ever want. That might be part of the darkest timeline, dot, dot, dot. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I may feel actually slightly better about a CBDC backed by Bitcoin than a CBDC backed by nothing. Most people in the world still think Bitcoin's a joke. And so there really wouldn't be an advantage to associating a CBDC with Bitcoin at this point in kind of the development of the narrative around Bitcoin. I think in a few years, I mean, because let's be honest, we're right now we're standing on the precipice of another 2008-ish financial crisis. At least that's what I see from uh, you know, mostly Jeff Schneider's work looking at uh, euro dollar markets. So I think that how Bitcoin reacts to the next financial crisis could be either the next step up in interest and adoption and focus from a new wave of uh, Bitcoiners coming in, or it could, you know, speak to a long, low bear market. Who knows? But I don't think we're quite at the level of recognition and interest that, you know, you have institutions kind of um, affinity scamming with Bitcoin yet, in my opinion. Something tells me we'll be watching the long road there. DBG comes in with 4,000 sats. Hey, Dad and Chris, I have an economic theory question for you. In the past, I had a stint with the radical left, and one of the arguments against the economic model espoused by my organization was the, quote, local knowledge problem. It made me more critically account for my beliefs and eventually recontextualize capitalism. However, I'm puzzled by organizations like the Fed and our general banking system. How do they avoid the local knowledge problem? They do seem to be in the business of central planning, based on listening to the show. Is this simply just a disconnect between theory and practice, or am I misunderstanding some economic principles? Thanks, and love the show as always. Thank you, DBG. Well, thanks for such a awesome question. And for you know anyone who's not familiar, the local knowledge problem, it's a very intuitive issue, which is there is local knowledge. Like if you are a small business, you might know a lot about your local market, how to get materials, what people like in that community. But sharing this knowledge with other people is very difficult. There isn't a good way to do it. And so as you scale up business operations or government management or whatever, there's no ability to incorporate all of this local knowledge into big policies, and it can create massive problems. And I think that's literally what's happening. So, you know, DBG, I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing your thoughtful and interesting question, which I think is effectively, if the Fed is a huge central planner, how can they not recognize that they're using incredibly generalized models to try to understand a society made up of thousands, millions of localities with very specific circumstances that are no way expressed in their models or policy? And yeah, the answer is, I don't think the Fed 
cares or thinks about that or values uh, that perspective. I'd be uh, interested to hear more about your stint with the radical left. The radical left means different things in different countries. So uh, that would be a, you know, a fun story for a future boost, maybe. Thank you so much. Thanks, DPG, for the thought-provoking boost. You know, the other thing that I think the local knowledge problem talks about, right, or the idea is, is like some of those ideas don't necessarily relocate. So, I, I you know, I could be you know, a local knowledge expert in small niche podcasting, right? But that doesn't necessarily translate to television or radio. There's that type of local knowledge, but there's also like your general area type local knowledge. I could, I could run a very successful large enterprise in this area, but it doesn't necessarily pick up and move to Florida and, and work in the same dynamics or California or Texas. And so that means that you can be an expert and you can be writing policy or creating models, but you're a local expert regardless, because that's just how the human brain works. And the only way I can see to solve it is just more decentralization. And having an economy where people can iterate and try and fail. I ran into this issue a lot in uh, China, where American businesses, foreign businesses would attempt to use their expertise from their home country in a completely different environment. And it would generally fail pretty hard before they realized that they had to adapt to the constraints of uh, their locale. Mere Mortals podcast boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. It's not up and running fully yet, but pod fans should have a budgeting slash auto boost feature in the near future. I'll keep you informed when that's live. Huh. So we... Okay. We have a, li- a link to potentially pod fans. And I wanted to mention, I was listening to the Mere Mortals podcast and they have um, episode thumbnails. It's really cool. Yeah. Like very well built. And I just wonder, how'd you do that? Was it pod fans? Like what? what's the tech stack there? Love to learn more. Peanut Butter Life came in with a, a kind of a fun boost. He gave us a hundred sats, I think when he hit the play or right before he hit play, because he says pre-show boost. But then he comes in with a thousand and one sats with the post-show boost. So letting us know he made it all the way to the end and sent a little boost in to uh, celebrate. Thank you, Peanut Butter Life. And uh, thank you, everybody who boosted in. Uh, Exo Resume, uh, you sent in 5,000 sats with no message. Lots of you uh, sent in streaming sats. So 3,000 sats came in with the Oak Node payment. That's awesome. Right? Is that Bob, right? That's Bob. I think it's Bob. It's pretty great. And uh, we just appreciate the support. This is a value for value podcast and you can get a new podcast app and try out all the new features at podcastapps.com or keep your dang podcast app. Get albie.com, top it off in app or however you like and go over to the podcast index and boost our app from there. we got a link to the dad pod on the index in the show notes. This has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Friday, April 14th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here as always remotely with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.